How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone a few moments to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and ready to concentrate, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful we can be here tonight. We're thankful that we have this opportunity to study your word. We're thankful for the freedom we have in this nation to freely assemble, to study your word, and proclaim the truth. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and that God the Holy Spirit would help us to see how they affect the way we think and look at life and our own reactions to the events of life. Father, we also remember uh, this time of prayer a couple of things related to the missionaries we support with Jim and Phyllis back, Myers back here in the country. We continue to pray for them and say travel, watch over them and give them opportunities to speak and teach. And, and uh, we know Jim's a great encouragement to the different pastors he visits as he go, travels through the country. And also we continue to pray for Chafer Seminary and for uh, some of the decisions that have to be made uh, in the coming weeks just related to ongoing operations. And so, Father, we pray for them, and we pray for this congregation, this church, and we're thankful for the way you provide for us, and we just look forward to your continued provision. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight uh, we're back in Romans, and we are in Romans 1, coming up on the last section in this first chapter. Uh, Romans 1, 26 and following is where we'll focus tonight. And one of the things that I've covered in the last two classes in looking at these first two stages of, uh, of uh, divine discipline that uh, God allows, it's more the function of his permissive will than necessarily an active judgment as God sort of lets people give them enough rope to hang themselves, as we'd say here in Texas, but he lets people, uh, gives them the freedom to reject him and then he uh, gives them even more opportunity to follow their negative volition and their rejection of him and to see how it continues to culminate in increasing uh, stages of uh, degradation and perversion. And one of the major themes that goes throughout each of these three stages, the three stages are each marked by the verb uh, translated God gave them up, we have it in verse 24, verse 26, and then the third and final time in verse 28. But in each stage, there's the indication that there is uh, some level of sexual degradation and perversion. It's most clearly seen in, ver in the second stage in verse 26 and 27, where it's clear that the rise of uh, homosexuality is clearly a consequence of the rejection of God and is part of God's divine discipline on a civilization. Last, and, and part of that really fits within a, uh, um, a web of different sins that are all related to sexual identity and gender confusion. And in the last class, I talked about the fact that there are specific uh, roles that Scripture identifies for males and females. And not just within marriage, within society, but within the local church. And that there is tremendous confusion and distortion of these roles as a result of sin. This is seen in, the, in uh, God's prediction of the problems that would arise and be generally true of men and women from the very uh, outline of the judgment on man, the curse in Genesis 3, uh, 16 and following. Uh, back from the very beginning, and this plays itself out uh, throughout Scripture. And so, again, it's seen here in these uh, stages of, of divine discipline, especially in Romans 1, uh, 26 and 27. And what we see in this passage, another thing I want to bring out, is this word nature. 
In the uh, Greek, you have two different forms of it. You have phusis, which is a noun, and you also have uh, phusikos, which is uh, an adjective, so that we, it has the natural use in verse 26 uh, for what is against nature. So the whole verse reads, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, and for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Now, what phusis means, this, this word group, uh, does not mean nature in the sense of creation. We have taken this concept of Mother Nature, Nature with a capital N, and we have personified it. And this, there are a lot of things that go into that, but uh, I don't want to get sidetracked. The focus is this isn't talking about nature in the sense of uh, creation and what is going on in terms of the natural world, uh, in terms of uh, uh, botany and biology and things of that nature. The, what the word indicates is a sense of what God originally designed, what God originally intended. And there are uh, various uh, indications from uh, other writers at the time the New Testament was written, Jewish writers, that this was the normative understanding within Second Temple Judaism, and that would reflect a tradition. Uh, among in Judaism going back all the way to Moses. Both Josephus and uh, Philo used the word nature as basically a synonym for God's original created intention. This is what God intended. So when we read this and uh, read a verse, it says that the natural use, you could do a simple word substitution that women exchange God's intended created design for what is against God's intended created design. Likewise, also the men leaving, the, uh, leaving God's intended created design for the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error uh, which was due. Now, this particular passage is, as you can imagine, at one of three or four passages in Scripture that are at the very uh, center of the debate over uh, homosexuality. Is it nature or nurture, as the debate is sometimes framed? And it has bled over into uh, Christian circles, and I use that term in a broad sense because those who are conservative... And by conservative, I mean Christians who believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, as opposed to many Christians who don't. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting if you get out on the Internet and try to uh, define the word evangelical, there are a variety of different definitions that you can, uh, that you can find, that you can come up with for evangelical. It's some... Um, Almost 50% of Christians in America identify themselves as evangelical. But for half of them, it has nothing to do with what they believe. Believe It's just sort of like, well, that sounds good, and I kind of identify with some things that they think evangelicals stand for, whether it's conservative things or whatever it might be, and so they want to identify themselves as evangelical, or they go to an evangelical church. But it isn't really a, something that's defined by by specific sets of belief. Evangelical comes from the Greek word evangelizo, the verb evangelizo, which means to the which relates to the gospel, pro, the proclamation of good news. And so at the very core of the meaning of evangelical is the belief that there is good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of mankind, and that he is the only way to heaven because only the death of Jesus on the cross provides the perfect solution to the sin problem. And so at the very core of the meaning of evangelical is the belief in the substitutionary atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only way to salvation. 
So there's a belief in the gospel. That's, that's at the beginning. Then the second thing that, we, that is part of the meaning of the word evangelical is the belief in the authority, the, authority, the inerrancy, the infallibility, um, the authority of God's word, that God inspired the Bible. It's not written by men recording their experiences with religion or with God, but it is the objective revelation of God uh, to man that God oversaw the process so that his spirit uh, working through individual writers of Scripture, prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, writes through them overseeing the process to guarantee that what they wrote was free from error. Uh, it used to be you just said you believed the Bible was the Word of God. That was enough. Then after that it became infallible and then inerrant. You had plenary and verbal was added and then inerrant. And now you have to use all of that language just to communicate the same thing that used to be said by simply saying you believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, and so that's a, each time you add one of these elements to the definition, it narrows that, that number. It's interesting, in the last couple of years, I've had several different conversations with some of my, my Jewish friends, and they'll ask me, uh, they'll, they'll start to ask me, or they'll, they'll be telling me about how much they appreciate the support of evangelicals for, uh, for Israel. And I learned not long ago that what I really need to do, we, we always jump in, we assume people mean, use these words and they know what they mean. Never assume that. So I've learned to ask them, say, well, I'm glad you appreciate evangelical support for Israel, but I'm curious, what do you mean by evangelical? Oh, that stumps them. They really don't know. Most people don't. I mean, I'm not just picking on my Jewish friends. I mean, they, most people don't know what it means. Most evangelicals don't know what it means. But they, they don't know what it means. And, and one of the things I've learned in, in the last couple of years is that uh, though I may have some theological differences uh, on, in, in some ways, what we would consider to be uh, within the family, so to speak, disagreements with uh, uh, John Hagee, who's pastor of Cornerstone Church in San Antonio. Uh, John Hagee has done a tremendous amount uh, in terms of raising the consciousness of a lot of Christians for support for Israel. And he's also raised a lot of money for taking care of different projects in Israel, all of which is very important. But um, we as non-charismatics do not always have a sympathetic view of those who are charismatics. And so that's a, that's a fraternal dispute. But to those outside the family, they don't have a clue what that means. And as I've gotten to know so many evangelical Jews, I'll say, you know, that pastor, Hagee, is just one of the greatest people in the world. He does so much for Israel, and he's, and he's done so much to, for, for evangelicals supporting Israel. They don't care. In fact, if you even raise your eyebrow like, well, wait a minute, you know, there's something there that may be not quite right. They get deeply concerned and maybe offended, or maybe they think you might be a little anti-Semitic if you don't agree with them, because they don't see and understand and ha or even have a clue what the intrafraternal issues are between charismatics and non-charismatics. And so that's, that's an interesting thing to be, uh, to be aware of. And within the broader term of evangelical, you have charismatics and non-charismatics, and not even all evangelicals are necessarily pro-Israel. I would say a large percentage are. The vast majority probably are, but not, not necessarily. Well, anyway, there's also a guy by the name of George Barna, and you can go to his website, just Google George Barna, B-A-R-N-A. He is sort of an evangelical pollster on the order of George Gallup and some of the others, and he's been working for probably 20 years or more with his organization polling uh, Christians as to what Christian beliefs and activities are, and he has a nine-point belief system for what, it, what makes an evangelical an evangelical. And it includes in the, un, the belief in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture, the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, the deity of Christ, uh, the Trinity, and, he, and the literal second coming of Jesus, belief in miracles, belief in the virgin birth, and 
four or five other things. And so he has a narrow definition of what an evangelical is, and his view of an evangelical would would narrow its numbers down to about 20 to 25 million Americans. NBC would say it's closer to 100 million, but then their, their, their frame of reference, subjective as the news media is, I know that may surprise some of you, is, so they're just consistent with their subjectivity. They think that if you think you're an evangelical, you must be one. So they have a rather large number uh, of evangelicals, but actually Barn is right. It's closer to about uh, about 20 million. And among evangelicals even, there has been <clears throat> the intrusion of various liberal ideas related to a number of different social issues, including even the uh, homosexual issue. And there are those... It's, int- it's funny how e- evangelical scholars come along and they always seem to be about 10 years behind wherever the culture's gone. And even when the culture sort of does an about-face, it takes uh, some of these scholars a few decades before they do an about-face. But as it is, there are those who have uh, set forth or tried to use the Scripture to argue for a pro-homosexual position. In other words, they assume what they've heard out there in the marketplace of, of America, that they're, that it's not nurture. In other words, it's not a choice. That's what nurture means. It's how you're raised, choice that you make. It's not nurture. It's, it's, uh, it's really nature. They believed the view that there is a gay gene or even a genetic uh, predisposition towards homosexual behavior. And so assuming a conclusion derived empirically from uh, various studies, and remember, all empirical studies eventually get uh, are, are influenced, are nuanced by the presuppositions of the people conducting the studies. That's why studies have to be duplicated and replicated again and again and again to get the same results. Otherwise, it's just somebody skewing the data. And there's always data that can be discovered a year or two or 10 or 20 or 100 years later that completely subverts uh, some studies. So back in the early 90s, there were a couple of studies that came out that uh, suggested rather strongly, or at least that's the way it was uh, expressed in the in the uh, news media, that they had found the gay gene. And so uh, homosexuality was determined by genetics, and there really wasn't anything uh, that could be done about it. And so there are evangelical scholars uh, on the loose or left side of the spectrum within evangelicalism that believe that uh, Paul is not condemning all forms of homosexuality here or in 1 Corinthians 6 or in some of the other uh, passages, but that he's just talking about homosexual acts that are contrary to the nature of the individual. You catch that? It's not contrary to nature as as a universal absolute. It's contrary to that person's nature. So even though they're homosexual, they're involved in some sort of homosexual activity that really goes beyond even their nature, and so that's when it becomes wrong. It's funny how people play all kinds of games to try to justify sin, and and reality is the Bible doesn't pick on homosexuality as as a as a sin that is somehow unique and distinct from all other sins. There there are. The only thing that distinguishes some sins as being worse than others is their consequences, such as uh, telling a small lie or white lies, it used to be called, is, does not have the same consequences as uh, mass murder, as genocide. But it, ju- it violates the righteousness of God just as much, so therefore all sin is sin because it violates the standard of God's character. And in that sense, all sin is equivalent, but the consequences uh, may differ. And how Christians have tried to deal with the problems of homosexuality uh, <clears throat> vary. There's a spectrum, and some just 
react to it for whatever reason, and they do indeed try to make it some sort of super special uh, sin, that, uh, and that's because usually of a misinterpretation of the passages in, first, like for example, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where it talks about those who commit a, host, a list of sins don't inherit the kingdom of God. They have a similar list in Galatians chapter 5, verses uh, 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 22 and following, and uh, or about 20 and following, and, and others. And in, we, as we studied, that phrase, inheriting the kingdom, doesn't mean uh, gaining eternal life. It has to do with a position within heaven, and it has to do with rewards and not salvation. So anyhow, this has made the news again this week, so... Once again, uh, loc- the, the news in the nation somehow fits our Bible study. You'd almost think the Bible was relevant or something. So both of these came out this last week. They both relate to the Southern Baptist Convention, which uh, must be meeting this week in Phoenix. And so the, first, the headline of the first one is that a se- seminary president, Southern Baptist seminary pr- president, says that Baptists have been homophobic. Now, that headline is a little misleading because the Southern Baptist uh, Seminary president they're talking about is, is uh, Dr. Uh, Al Mohler, who is the president of Southern Seminary in Louisville, which is very conservative, and he is very conservative. But basically the point that he is making is the one I just made, is that, um, that homosexuality is a sin, but it's not to be separated or distinguished from all other uh, from all other sins, and so because it has often been taken out of context and treated as some super sin, uh, that is a problem that the Southern Baptists have often had. And he said, you know, the solution to homosexuality is like the solution to every other sin. It's the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there is another news item related to the Southern Baptist Convention. And that is that um, a coalition of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, that's LGBT, if you all are not familiar with the acronym, the LGBT groups were seeking an apology from the Southern Baptists for uh, the damage, quote, damaging uh, consequences of their scriptural teachings on homosexuality. So... The another uh, the guy's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention right now is a Reverend Brian Bryant Wright. Uh, basically said, not in this lifetime. <laughs> That's just my summary of what he said. He said uh, he said he says um, he refused to budge during the meeting, saying that the scripture is very clear on the issue. He said, obviously, we don't feel that there can be an apology for teaching sexual purity. As followers of Christ, our only authority for practicing our faith is Scripture. It's the Word of God. As followers of Christ, it would be very difficult for us to betray our faith by ignoring what God says about sexual purity. For a society to come along at this stage in history and all of a sudden say that one of the areas that that, that there's an area that Christ, over which Christ has no power, uh, that homosexual behavior is not under the authority of God, would be uh, would be an error. So the Southern Baptist uh, Convention is not changing, at least this year, and they're not going to be apologizing. But this just shows the, that whatever the problems are in the culture at large, they always have an impact uh, inside of the church, inside of uh, evangelicalism. Now, there are many very solid, very solid scholars, very solid biblicists in the country who take a very strong stand uh, on historical truth and on what is scripturally revealed in relationship to uh, the whole problem of homosexuality. And as we look at this passage, we see that the sin related to homosexuality are not singled out or identified in terms of some special class or super class of sins. In fact, that they're uh, the, spe- the specific relate uh, or the specific uh, use or, or revelation related to homosexuality is only in the second stage of, uh, of God's giving people over to their vile passions. The third stage includes just about any other kind of sin that you can possibly think of. There's 22 or so that are listed there, and it just about covers every category of sin that you might 
might think of. But before we go into the last category, I want to one more time address this issue of sexual or gender confusion and address this question of is there a gay gene? Now, before I get there, I want to give a little summary of some concluding observations, about seven points, eight points I have here on concluding observations, when I, what I've said the last couple of weeks. First of all, as part of, uh, as part of the religious degeneration that takes place from the rejection of God, one is social and sexual degeneration. Social and sexual degeneration comes as a result of rejecting God's authority in what we have identified as the divine institutions. As a result of that, what happens is these, these social institutions that God establishes begin to become perverted and, and they're really attacked by uh, sexual degeneracy. Uh, second thing we've learned, a basic principle, is that as biblical truth impacts a culture, it transforms that society with biblical norms and standards and establishment truth, and the result is stability and order, peace, and economic prosperity. This is what happened in Western civilization. It's what's usually ignored in Western civilization courses. But if you look at the culture of the Greek, Greek civilization and Roman civilization, it was just as pagan and just as perverted as any other uh, pagan society, whether you're talking about something going on in India or in Africa or anywhere else. There were elements of demonism that uh, came through the various uh, uh, false religions, idolatry, for example, the... Uh, uh, Delphi Oracle uh, in Greece is channeling a demon, this kind of thing. So, so all of that was there. Western civilization is the result of Christianity coming into the Roman Empire, and as a result of the teaching of Christianity, it changes the very nature of the Roman Empire and brings stability and order uh, into the Roman Empire. Another principle that we study, this would be the third point, is just the reverse of the second principle, and this is that as biblical truth is rejected and diluted, biblical norms become demonized by a pagan culture. And we're seeing more and more of that in our culture today, that as, we, as the culture turns away from biblical values and absolutes, those who hold them become more and more at odds with the culture until we get to the point where we're identified as the problem. We become demonized. Those, the real problem that we have is in this country is those nasty Christians. If we just get rid of them, then we can have real freedom. We can have uh, real socialism, and we can have, uh, um, you know, no, there won't be any problems with homosexuality or drugs or anything else. We can just have a perfect society. And so once uh, biblical truth is rejected, those who hold to it become the enemy. Fourth thing that I've looked at is the norms of divine establishment, the four or five, rather, uh, divine institutions, individual responsibility. Every individual is responsible to God. God is the authority in the first divine institution. Second divine institution is marriage. The authority in marriage is the husband. Homosexuality, sexual perversion, adultery, fornication, all of these attack marriage. They are assaults on marriage. When the legal system has laws within it, as the Mosaic Law did and as many laws in the United States and the, and, and the individual states had, when there are these kinds of laws that are on the books and enforced, it provides a deterrent for the licentious approach that has uh, been a characteristic of U.S. and Western culture for the last, uh, the last 50 or 60 years. That doesn't mean that these things didn't go on before, but once they are removed from the, the books, removed from law, then people just have the restraint taken away and they'll just do whatever they want to do as if there are no consequences. It then becomes 
And there, in the popular imagination, if it's not against the law, it's moral. It's okay. This is the problem with uh, legitimizing homosexuality. I want my sin. I'm not. I don't have any trends towards homosexuality. I have trends towards other sins. I want my arrogance and the fact that I can be short-tempered and grumpy and a few other things. I'm not going to confess all my sins to you. I want those legitimate, uh, legitimized. You know, if they can have their sin legitimized, why can't I have my sins legitimized? And why can't you have your sins legitimized? You know, let's just make everything okay. See, that's the problem. Once you start give, putting a stamp of approval on one particular group's uh, sin nature trend, now why can't you do that with everybody? Well, we, we know why. It just they, they just have political pull. We need to get all the people together who have certain trends, get them organized, and then start going to Washington to get uh, those particular sins uh, made legitimate. See, that's just really silly. Third divine institution is family. The authority in the family is the parents. Of course, among the parents, the ultimate authority is the father. But homosexuality truly attacks the family. Of course, now we want to have uh, gay parents who can adopt, but there are uh, interesting problems that are going to result from that. We've just started these experiments, so we don't know where they're going to end up. But it, again, it's an assault on the family. Fourth, the government, the governing judicial authority, once you start legitimizing these things, it has a, a series of unintended co consequences within government because now government has to start changing all kinds of, of rules and laws and regulations. Uh, for example, health care is just, just one, but there are many other uh, laws, regulations that are built around uh, centuries of the realization that marriage is between a man and a woman, not between a man and a man or a woman and a woman, and that these laws provide stability for uh, inheritance for one thing, but they pro so they provide uh, provide levels of stability for property ownership and many other things uh, within a nation. Once you start changing those things, it will introduce all kinds of instability and uncertainty within within a nation. You don't know what how, all these laws uh, are no longer going to be uh, necessarily accepted. And then finally, you have the distinction between national identity. That's the fifth divine institution. So these sexual sins and the gender identification sins specifically assault marriage and family and those laws that are related to uh, government in terms of uh, family and, and marriage. Fifth point is that as society utilizes and applies establishment of principles, it stabilizes and strengthens a nation. It provides mental discipline. It, it supports uh, strength of character and developing virtue uh, within a nation. But when you uh, remove these things and change them, then it has the unintended consequence of assaulting character and integrity and virtue within a nation, and it promotes uh, self-centeredness. When you promote the divine institutions, it promotes a, a mentality that is against self-centeredness. You are serving the nation. You're serving one another. You're looking out for the interests of others and not just serving your own uh, individual passions. So establishment principles promote solid character, and that's part of developing the core of any of any organization, but especially a nation. So the result is, uh, sixth point, when society rejects these norms, the society begins to fragment, destabilize, and lose prosperity in all kinds of ways. Seventh point is that Sodom in the Old Testament is a picture of a society at the end of that cycle, and God brings judgment on them. But we see this also in the book of Judges. As you go through the book of Judges, you see this deterioration that occurs uh, within uh, Israel's culture. Uh, it's a, covers a period of about 300-plus years, and as you go through that, you see that by the time you get to the end of the book of Judges, that uh, Samson, who is depicted, who you know, most people look at him as a hero, but he never delivers the nation. They're still under the under the dominion of the Philistines when uh, 
Samson dies, he never accomplishes his task. He has tremendous disrespect for his parents. He never truly obeys the uh, Nazarite vow that uh, that uh, is supposed to rule his life. The only thing he obeys is he just doesn't cut his hair. It's probably because he's lazy or because he looks pretty and he's attractive to women because of his because of his long hair. But he uh, he wasn't supposed to touch anything dead, and he touches the corpse of the lion when he gets the honey out, and he he picks up the jawbone of an ass. Well, the jawbone's part of a corpse, so he's violating his. Uh, Nazarite vow there, he never takes the word of God seriously. So by the time you get to the end of Judges, here you have Samson. He has tremendous disrespect for his parents, disrespect for his mother, and he treats all the women in his life as if they're nothing but objects for his own personal pleasure. So you see what happens in a culture as they get away from the authority of God's word is it begins to just uh, come apart at the seams and it affects everybody within the culture. And so, and then the final point, the eighth point, is that Divine Viewpoint teaches that gender confusion and homosexuality are a direct assault on a nation, they, but they are part of God's judgment for a nation that has already uh, rejected him. So those eight points give us a summary. Now, let's look at this question that comes up. Is there such a thing as a gay gene? And I want to give you just three or four good uh, good, concise pieces of evidence here to show that this is uh, not the issue that you often hear that it is. First of all, first line of evidence, I'm going to, in answering this question, I'm going to give you four basic or five basic lines of evidence at the beginning. You can remember two or three of these just to Keep them around in case you get in a discussion. First of all, the Human Genome Project completed its task in mapping out the human gene in 2003. They never identified a gay gene. In all the hoopla and all the celebration and everything, there was one thing they never discussed. It's the silence is loud. They never discovered a gay gene. Not once. Um, Second argument that's put forth is in early in the early 90s there was the first uh, study that came out that indicated that there might be uh, a gay gene. There was the suggestion of it. However, uh, the way it was reported in the news was that they had identified a gay gene. Now, in Science uh, magazine, in an article entitled "Male Sexual Orientation and Genetic Evidence," authored by Neil Risch and um, Elizabeth Squires-Wheeler and Bronya Keats, they concluded, quote, there is little disagreement that male homosexual orientation is not a Mendelian trait. That means it's not genetic. You hear that? That's their conclusion. In fact, a priori, that means before you look at the evidence. Just thinking about it, they say, in fact, a priori, one would expect the role of a major gene in male homosexual orientation to be limited because of the strong selective pressures against such a gene. Now, that word selective, he's talking about natural selection. It's a Darwinian term. What's he saying? He's saying there, there's a pressure against this. Why? If the male homosexual, if there's a male homosexual gene and it becomes dominant, that's the end of the species. It's over with. There's no replication. So he's arguing here just on a philosophical point that uh, you would think that a male homosexuality would be or homosexual orientation would be limited because it is uh, self-destructive to the species. He goes on to say, uh, or they go on to say, it is unlikely that a major gene underlying such a common trait could persist over time without an extraordinary counterbalancing mechanism. Their conclusion is there's no such thing as a gay gene. In a, another study, um, article published in the, uh, by, by a neurobiologist at the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego by the name of Evan Balaban, uh, he concludes, quoting, um, um, and he's he quoted in an article by John Horgan, uh, Gay Genes Revisited, published in Scientific American. 
that the search for the biological underpinning, underpinnings of complex human traits has a sorry history of late. What he's saying is every time you turn around, you're reading about somebody saying, ah, we've discovered a gene for alcoholism or a gene for murder or a gene for abusiveness or something like that. And he's saying, see, the search for some kind of genetic excuse has a sorry history. They're not finding it. They claim they do, and two years later, uh, it's disproven. He says, in recent years, researchers and the media have proclaimed the discovery of genes linked to alcoholism and mental illness as well as to homosexuality. None of the claims has been confirmed. None. Then another report that's often... uh, often cited is the Kinsey Report. Now, there's a lot of criticism of the Kinsey Report because he did not use a representative sample. Volunteers came forward, and so he got volunteers from a lot of people from a certain segment of society. So his whole methodology is flawed to begin with. But even the Kinsey Report clearly stated that only about 4% of the men evaluated were exclusively homosexual throughout their entire life. Not 10%, not 11%, but this is a skewed sample anyway, but he's saying 4%, and only 2 or 3% of the women were exclusively homosexual their entire lives. However, other reports since then, remember his data was skewed because his, his subject uh, group was, was skewed, indicate that it's much lower than that. And this is a good example y'all can remember. In the 2000 census report, revealed that the total population of the U.S. is 285,230,516. The total number of households in the U.S. was 106,741,426, and the total number of unmarried same-sex households was 601,209. Thus, out of a population that has uh, 106,741,426 households, the number of same-sex households represents 0.42% of those households. That's less than half of 1% of the households in the U.S. are same-sex unions. One writer comments, since most people aren't mathematicians, uh, let's use an example that most people can understand. That means that if uh, you were going to write a television sitcom with a homosexual character, you would have to have 199 heterosexual actors for every homosexual actor. Now, that's not what you see on TV. More and more we're seeing sitcoms with six characters and three of them are homosexual because they're trying to communicate and brainwash the populace into thinking that the percentage of homosexuals in the culture are much higher when statistics are completely against that. Another way in which uh, people have tried to argue and justify homosexual behavior is by doing brain studies. In 1991... Uh, a man by the name, a doctor by the name of LeVay, uh, did a study and where he concluded that there were various brain differences between uh, homosexuals and heterosexuals. And his conclusion was because the, the physical brain makeup of homosexuals was different than heterosexuals, then this is what is at the root of homosexual uh, behavior. Blame it on how your brain was structured at birth. But some later, some years later, Mark Breedlove, who is a researcher at that bastion of conservative thought, the University of California at Berkeley, where's Kathy Yeamans when we need her, um, has demonstrated that sexual behavior has an effect on the brain. In other words, it's not the brain that causes sexual behavior, it's sexual behavior then that changes the structure of the brain. His conclusions were that these findings give us, give, give us proof of what we theoretically know to be the case, that sexual experience can alter the structure of the brain just as genes can alter it. It is possible that differences in sexual behavior cause rather than are caused by 
differences in the brain. Then there are twin studies. These are studies of twins, identical twins, as well as fraternal twins, and studying the percentages of homosexuals within uh, the identical twin population. And once again, the studies come up wanting. Both the study, uh, LeVay study, could never be re uh, replicated. Nobody could ever reproduce his findings. Same thing is true with the original twin studies that suggested a very high level of concordance among uh, homosexual, that if one twin, identical twin, was homosexual, the other would be. Those studies uh, have not been able to be uh, replicated at all. Then there was another study by uh, Dean Hammer of the National Cancer Institute who claimed to find a link to a gene in the X chromosome. But the study, again, was flawed. They failed to look at any heterosexual men to see if they had that same uh, gene in their X chromosome. A more detailed study, much larger study, was conducted by uh, George Rice, Dr. Rice and his colleagues in Canada, uh, looking to substantiate Hammer's findings, and the, his conclusion was that uh, they did not support anything that Hammer uh, founded. He said, it is unclear why our results are so discrepant from Hammer's original study, because our study was larger than that of, of Hammer and his associates. Uh, we certainly had an adequate power to detect a genetic effect as large as was reported in that study. Nevertheless, our data do not support the presence of a gene of large effect influencing sexual orientation at position XQ28. Uh, Another uh, factor that comes up is the issue of whether homosexual uh, conduct can be reversed. Now, if uh, Christians believe that homosexual conduct, just like heterosexual adultery or anything else, is choice that is made by an individual, it's not something that they are forced to that is predetermined by uh, any kind of material factor. And in June of 1998, the Univer University of Chicago, um, or excuse me, at, uh, uh, in 1992, the National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality re released the results of a two-year study. And their conclusion was that uh, before treatment, 68% of the respondents uh, perceived themselves as exclusively or almost entirely homosexual, with another 22% stating that they were more homosexual than heterosexual. After treatment, only 13%, remember, 68% originally said they were almost exclusively homosexual. After treatment, only 13%, that's a huge drop, 55% shift, only 13% perceived themselves as exclusively or almost entirely homosexual, while 33% described themselves as either exclusively or almost entirely heterosexual. Wow. Oh, wait a minute. We can't, we can't go with that. That doesn't really fit, does it? That would indicate its volition, right? So that's the uh, National Association for Research and Therapy of Homosexuality. <coughs> then... In even the American Psychiatric Association in 2009, uh, published in a pamphlet entitled Answers to Your Questions for a Better Understanding of Sexual Orientation and Homosexuality, the following. They said, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles, whereas in 1998, some 11 years earlier, they had stated there is considerable recent evidence to suggest that biology, including genetic or inborn hormonal factors, play a significant role in a person's sexuality. See, it's those kinds of irresponsible conclusions that led someone like John Dean, who at the time was the uh, uh, governor of, of, uh, of uh, Vermont, to sign into legislation uh, laws of same-sex unions because... He believed that the findings that it was genetic, and so we can't restrict these uh, individuals because they can't help it. 
It's the way they were born. What was interesting in my study today, and I didn't write down the website, I ran across a uh, homosexual, pro-gay website that basic thesis of all these articles, they had links to all kinds of articles and they had all kinds of material on their website, and their basic argument was that it, 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 to say that homosexuality is genetic is one of the most homophobic things you can say. I never read anything like this, but their argument was that the, that basically what they're saying is this: we're just trapped in this horrible lifestyle of being homosexual, but we can't help it because it's genetic. And he, you know, and I looked at that, I thought, well, you know, that's the point. What they're basically saying is we're trapped here; we can't do anything about it, so we're just going to stick with it because that's the way fate has determined it. That's the way our genetic structure is. And they said, we ought to be proud of the fact we've chosen a homosexual lifestyle. <laughs> so they're out there promoting choice. It's our choice. And they had a number of citations of books and pamphlets and many other things that were, were supporting the fact that homosexuality was a choice. Uh, that, is, that is what Scripture affirms, that this is a choice. It is a volitional decision like any other sin. Now, there may be various... Uh, uh, environmental factors and developmental factors and genetic predispositions in the same nature or whatever, but that doesn't mean that you have to act on those uh, those predispositions or whatever they might be, those temptations. It's a matter of making a decision. So homosexuality is, and this whole thing with gay marriage is all fueled by a false assumption, the propaganda that's out there, uh, never still uh, promoting this whole idea that uh, homosexuality is a result of a gay gene, and so we, we ought not do anything to take away from their civil rights. They can't do anything about being, any, uh, being gay any more than a black person can do anything about being black or a Hispanic person can do anything about being uh, Hispanic, so we just need to give them the same rights we give everybody else. It's just self-destruct. We're witnessing the application of this second stage of divine discipline uh, in, before our very eyes. Well, the third stage comes up in verse 28. In verse 28 we read, and even as they did not like, that is, they, that they refers to those who are have rejected God, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, this is the third stage, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. The ultimate cause of this is their negative volition. As it is uh, translated here, that verb, they did not like to retain, is based on the Greek verb dokimazo. Now, I want you to pay attention to this verb. A form of this verb shows up three times in this, these last few verses. Dokimazo has the idea of to test something, to accept something is proved or approved. So a better translation of this would be that just as they did not approve having God in their knowledge, they've rejected God and so they don't approve of having God in their knowledge. Now, I can't think of a better term to express the views of so many uh, liberals in the United States who are saying that we just don't approve of having God in the classroom. We don't approve of having God in the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. We don't approve of having God in the public square. They've rejected God, and so they now disapprove of God. So they do not approve of having God in their knowledge. The result is that God gives them over. Once again, he takes his hands off, his restraining power on sin is removed a little more and gives them over to a debased mind. Now look at the word for translated debased. It is the noun a dokimas. The verb for uh, not approving God is was dokimazo. See, it's the same root idea having to do with approval. Now each form has a little different sense to it. And here, ah, the A at the beginning is a negative, so it's talking about something that is, rather than being qualified or approved, it's unqualified or uh, 
uh, not approved or unfit, reprehensible. It's translated in the sense of a depraved mind, a debased mind, a perverted mind. So God gives them over to a perverted or debased mind. He's just letting their sin nature uh, follow its own course with the result that they do things that are not fitting or not approved. And this is the verb uh, katheko, meaning simply it's not fitting, it's not approved, uh, and it is detestable or abominable. Now, that becomes defined through a list of 22 sins that come up in the following, uh, following verses. Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now, that's the first word. Now, why is unrighteousness the first word? Because the t- subject matter, the key issue in Romans is the righteousness of God. So the first sin that's listed here, it's, not, it's listed in a logical order, not in a uh, n- necessarily the way it automatically flows, but it's they're filled with all unrighteousness in contrast to the righteous God they've rejected filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, uh, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, that is, gossipers. Um, The word, therefore, being filled is the word plerao, same word we have for filled with the Holy Spirit, but there it's talking about filled by means of the Holy Spirit. Here it's descriptive again uh, with the result that they are... And it's a perfect passive participle, so it has to do with completed action, completed results. And it often has the idea of a descriptive use. So it's saying this is what describes these people. These are the words that characterize uh, this third stage. They are unrighteous, unrighteousness, sexual immorality, um, etc. Now... I broke these down into three categories, or four categories for us. First, several of these are just what I would identify as general uh, descriptions of sin, unrighteousness, wickedness, hostility, uh, inventors of evil, uh, evil, senseless, undiscerning, which is the word also translated foolish, ah, sunetas, without wisdom or without knowledge, not trustworthy, sometimes it's translated, cannot trust their word, ah, synthetas. So these are just general uh, types of sins. You can't classify them as mental attitude or uh, sins of the tongue or overt. Then you have your mental attitude sins, covetous. That means uh, uh, desiring to have various material things or money as a source of happiness Covetousness is also identified by Paul in uh, Colossians 3 as uh, as idolatry. You're worshiping money or the things that money can buy. Malice, uh, just the hate, the mental attitude of just implacability and hate for something. Envy, uh, deceit, uh, hostility, a hater of God. Violent arrogance, this is also translated insolence. It's the Greek word hubristes from hubris. So it has that idea of arrogance, but it's acting out on that arrogance. Then you also have the phrase without natural affection, heartless or unloving. Those are three different ways of translating the uh, noun astorgos. Storge is a Greek word for love that's not used anywhere in the New Testament. It's from the word stork. First time I ever saw stork was in Greece, went to Greece, and you drive along down the highway, and you see these huge nests up on the top of telephone poles for the storks. And the love of a mother stork for the uh, for her young was called storgeo. That was a certain kind of love. And so they just took that from what they saw uh, visually within their experience. But astorgos is the opposite of that. It's unloving, uncaring, Uh, It's because they're given over to arrogance and self-centeredness. And then uh, unmerciful. When you're completely self-absorbed, there's no time to have mercy for others. And you had sins of the tongue, slander, strife, gossip, proud in a boastful or conceited manner, 
as opposed to the next word, which is just being boastful. So you have two different Greek words there, huper, ephanos, and alazon. And then the last category, overt, you only have two overt sins mentioned, murder and disobedience to parents. So these are the various uh, sins that are listed here and uh, identified here. So you have all kinds of unrighteousness, adikia, and uh, sexual immorality, which is porneria, which can be a, a word that just that includes every kind of sexual sin, uh, just summarized in one uh, particular word. And then verse 32, these people, know, knowing the righteous judgment of God, uh, who, because they know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things, and that's the Greek word proso, this is something, it's not which means to do something. It's not talking about somebody who just does something once or twice or a few times. Or some. This is what they, they're committed to. This is an ongoing practice. Those who practice such things are deserving of death. Uh, deserving of death, not only, do the, uh, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now, that word for knowledge there at the beginning is very interesting. It's the word epinosis. So it is a full experiential knowledge of the righteousness of God. So take verse 32 at the end of chapter 1 and use that as the conclusion and bracket that with verse 20, which says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made so that they are without excuse begins with a statement that they know God exists, and it ends with the statement that they know God exists. And yet in between, they're doing everything they can to suppress the knowledge of God uh, by means of unrighteousness. And the result is that God just gives them over to uh, just act out on their negative volition and to be as, as unrighteous as they can. So he removes those restraints. So they not only practice these things, and they deserve death, but God in his grace doesn't bring temporal judgment on them. He postpones that so that he can extend mercy and the offer of the gospel. But see, we are all deserving of death. There's nothing in God's character that demands that he gives any of us uh, salvation or a provision for salvation. In his justice, he could just judge us instantly. What's your support for that? Wait a minute. I thought God had to give us salvation. Didn't do it for the angels. Satan sinned. He gave them time to make up their choice. They're going to follow Satan or not. They make their choice, and that's it. There's no common grace there for the angels. There's no ongoing extension of grace in terms of providing a redemption solution for the angels. Why? Because grace is God's choice. He can choose to extend grace or not. There's nothing in his character that necessitates that God be gracious to a, an undeserving creature. That's what makes it grace. It is his choice to extend love to a creature and the opportunity for their salvation rather than just instantly uh, destroying them because he has a plan and he has a purpose. So they deserve death, but God postpones that to give them the opportunity to turn to him. And so these who deserve death not only practice these things themselves, but they also approve of those who practice them. So they're, they're supporting that. There, there is a battle going on. There is a war going on. So often we forget this, that we are engaged, especially in the culture in which we're in now, in a major war against the forces of darkness. And we are soldiers in that conflict as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility to fight according to the principles of Scripture. You know, we're tearing down uh, every lofty thought that is raised against God. We are to fight according to the principles of Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And we are engaged in representing God to a fallen world primarily through witnessing of the gospel and witnessing in our own lives. But in order to be well-trained soldiers, 
We have to know the word because that is our field manual. That is what tells us how we are to fight the battle and what we're fighting it for. And uh, so that necessitates the knowledge of the scripture because that is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Well, we'll come back next time. We'll go from our general introduction in Romans chapter 1 to the specific indictment of the moral person who thinks his morality can get him uh, a hearing with God in chapter 2. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to have gone through this first chapter and looked at all the various things that are there for us, understanding that every human being knows you exist and that they are in rebellion. Nevertheless, in your magnificent grace, you have postponed judgment for the offer of salvation. And, Father, we pray that we would be faithful faithful stewards of your word, faithful stewards of the truth of doctrine, and that we might uh, be faithful in terms of our own spiritual life to grow to spiritual maturity, that we might be effectively used by you in terms of the cosmic uh, warfare of the angelic conflict. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.